basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. OMP? Go. AFC? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. We've been talking for a while about Project Gemini and its journey from an engineering project to improve the Mercury capsule to being NASA's second major program and its first real steps towards landing on the moon. Along the way, I have spent a bit of time talking about some of the uh, nittier and grittier aspects of how big space projects actually get done. And perhaps you're beginning to despair that for a podcast that's supposed to be about working in space, we have been spending an awful lot of time talking about things that don't work on the ground. And that might be a fair characterization, but also, to be fair, if you want to go to space successfully, you're probably going to spend a lot of the time failing on the ground first. That really is the nature of the space business, and if you want to really appreciate humanity's journey off the planet, then you have to understand all of the false starts and failed attempts along the way. But today, I promise that we are finally going to get back to space. Eh, eventually. Like Project Gemini, though, we still have a few hurdles to get over before we can, as they say, light the candle and get out of here. And besides which, I do think that the story of Project Gemini's journey to the launch pad is still quite interesting, if only because of the breadth of the problems that had to be solved. It really is a fascinating study of how, uh, in the early days of spaceflight, the space program really was pushing the boundaries of science and engineering in ways that, you know, maybe we've forgotten. Many of the problems that were solved in order to get Gemini into orbit became routine, and we've forgotten just how much we still had to learn when Gemini was starting out in 1962. So, the first of these problems was, of course, to find a way of getting the new capsule into orbit because the booster used for Mercury, the Atlas booster, was just not powerful enough to do the job. Now, we also need to remember that when Gemini was started in uh, January of 1962, there had really only been a bare handful of rockets that had actually left the planet, and only one, the Russian Vostok rocket, that had successfully put a human into orbit around the planet because John Glenn was yet to launch when Gemini started. Not only that, but even on the military side of rocketry, um, you know, the whole concept of the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, or ICBM, was still very much in its infancy. And the thing about the ICBM that was new was not really the ballistic missile part, um, even though that concept was really only a decade and a half old in 1962. Now, the really new part of the ICBM was the Intercontinental part. And, you know, that's actually more connected to human spaceflight story than you might think. I mean, you see, the early ballistic missiles, like the V-2, were essentially just aimed at their target from the moment they launched, and the whole rocket just flew there. Uh, ICBMs, on the other hand, work a little differently. Just like a manned spacecraft, like the ones we've been talking about, an ICBM has two parts, a booster and a warhead. The booster's job is to get the warhead into space, and then it's discarded. Only the warhead actually makes its way to the target. And just like a manned spacecraft, it's the re-entry of the warhead that determines where it ends up, rather than the launch of the booster. 
So the technology and techniques that were being learned on programs like Mercury and its Soviet's equivalents were actually directly applicable to this brand new kind of weapon. In the same way that a manned spaceflight mission consisted of delivering a capsule containing a human to space and then returning him to Earth, an ICBM mission consisted of delivering a warhead to space from which it could be aimed at a target. And if the booster had the capability to get the warhead into orbit, that meant that the target could, quite literally, be anywhere on the planet. And that's what made the ICBM a new and, frankly, terrifying weapon. And it's why development was so closely tied to the human spaceflight developments in both the United States and the Soviet Union. But it was also the reason that the Gemini program believed it didn't have to develop a separate booster to meet its needs. Because the role of the booster on an ICBM was essentially analogous to the role of the booster in a manned spaceflight. So it seemed reasonable that the booster developed for an ICBM could also be used as a booster for Gemini. And so NASA turned to the booster for the new Titan II ICBM to provide the booster for Gemini. Now, as we talked about before, the other factor that recommended Titan II to the Gemini program was the fact that its propellant combination combustion characteristics were such that it was possible for the crew to use ejection seats to escape potential failures during launch, because basically the explosion wouldn't be as big, as opposed to needing an escape rocket system like the one used on Mercury and subsequently on Apollo as well. The other advantage to NASA, of course, was that since the Titan II development was being funded by the United States Air Force, NASA would only have to pay for any minor modifications required to use the booster for a capsule carrying a human being instead of a re-entry vehicle carrying a nuclear bomb. Now, hopefully you heard the air quotes around the word minor in that statement. In point of fact, the issue of man-rating an ICBM booster would end up being just about the biggest problem that Gemini would have to solve. Like the Gemini program as a whole, the Titan II program got off to a quick start. In fact, the first Titan II launched in mid-March of 1962, barely three months into the Gemini program. No doubt this early scheduled launch was one of the factors that convinced the Gemini project office that they could actually plan on initial Gemini launch in early 1963. Alas, the problems also got off to a quick start. And the program management issues that were to feature prominently in resolving those problems also started early. You see, the Air Force was very pleased with its first launch, the launch of Missile, missile N-2. It had done everything that was required of it as a missile. It had launched successfully and deposited its recovery vehicle more than 8,000 kilometers downrange, right on target. But it had also exhibited a much higher longitudinal vibration than had been expected. In other words, the missile vibrated up and down along its length quite violently, kind of like a pogo stick. The level of vibration didn't pose a problem for the missile's re-entry vehicle, with its nuclear warhead, but for a human sitting in the capsule atop the booster, the vibration, labeled the Pogo effect by NASA, was violent enough to possibly cause, it, cause injury, and it was certainly violent enough to cause incapacitation. In effect, for a human sitting atop the Titan II booster, the world would have been jumping up and down violently enough to make it impossible to read instruments, much less accurately access switches or controls within the capsule if it didn't make him violently ill. In short, uh, there was no way that the Titan II booster could be man-rated 
while it exhibited this level of the pogo effect. Um, To put it in perspective, NASA had specified any launch vibration should be kept below 0.25 G, or one quarter G. In other words, the effect of the vibration should be to put less than one quarter of the force of gravity on humans in the capsule. This was actually about half of what Mercury astronauts had been subjected to, but the reduction was in large part due to the fact that the Gemini astronauts were expected to be much more active participants in the launch and ascent process than the Mercury astronauts had been. The pogo effect on the first flight was closer to 2G, even which is several times even what the Mercury capsule had experienced. The problem was then actually exacerbated when the subsequent launches not only exhibited the pogo effect, but also experienced other failures that were of much greater moment to the Air Force. Most serious of these was that the second stage of the Titan II booster didn't seem to function consistently at all. Some tests, such as the first one, it functioned exactly as expected. But on other tests, the second stage engines never did settle down to a consistent thrust after ignition, and often the second stage developed only a fraction of its expected thrust, with the effect that the re-entry vehicle didn't end up anywhere near its target. Since the re-entry vehicle was intended to contain a nuclear warhead, the Air Force concluded, uh, with some justification, that this was a much bigger problem than a little bit of oscillation when the first stage was burning. And here's where the program management arrangement started to become an issue. For NASA, the Titan II booster was simply not going to meet requirements unless both the second stage thrust issue and the POGO issue were satisfactorily resolved. For the Air Force, though, the second stage issue was a priority, and solving the POGO problem was going to have to take a back seat until that was resolved. To make matters worse, one of the simple fixes that the Titan engineers suggested actually seemed to make the Pogo problem worse, reaching as much as 6G at one point. So much worse, in fact, that it actually contributed to the second stage engine problems. So it's easy to see why the Air Force put resolution of the Pogo problem on the back burner while they worked out the second stage burn problem. Through the fall of 1962 and into 1963, The Titan II program was plagued by a series of launch failures as well, due to everything from a poorly designed launch silo to plain old uh, quality escapes, uh, including issues as simple as broken plumbing and faulty welds. In the end of the first 20 Titan launches, most would not have met NASA's POGO requirement, and 7 of 20 would have had to have been aborted if they had been crewed launches. Worse, By that point in the Air Force's qualification program, there were only 13 more launches planned, and fully 12 of them would have to be successful in order for the program to even continue. So, in the spring of 1963, matters came to a head when the Air Force simply announced that it no longer had enough resources to fix the POGRO issue to NASA's satisfaction. This, of course, triggered some uh, full and frank discussions between the senior ranks of NASA and the Air Force. Um, In the end, the situation was rescued by a series of small developments rather than by a single big one. The first thing that cleared the way for a more constructive approach was that the Air Force actually started to get interested in the whole Gemini program as part of its own plans for its own manned space program. The uh, U.S. Air Force had something uh, they were planning called the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, Now, this program may one day be worth its own episode of Terranauts, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole today. 
1963, though, the Air Force was quite serious about having its own manned spaceflight program, and the central part of this was the Manned Orbiting Laboratory. This would be staffed by Air Force astronauts and be used, among other things, to provide continuous surveillance of the Earth's surface from space. All of the Earth's surface from space, including the Soviet Union. And suffice it to say that the MOL program actually progressed to the point where it recruited prospective astronauts, and even though the program was canceled before it ever flew, those astronauts were eventually transferred to NASA and flew on the Gemini and Apollo programs. So, one possible design for the MOL program involved using much of the work done by Gemini. And, in fact, the Air Force was sufficiently interested in Gemini that it um, offered to take over running the whole program for NASA. Um, I think it's fair to say that while NASA management was glad to have the extra attention paid to the issues of man raiding the Titan II booster, uh, they politely, well, or not so politely, uh, declined the Air Force's offer to steal the program out from under them. However, the extra attention being paid to Gemini and to Titan II um, as the Gemini booster did increase the motivation of the Air Force program managers to take an interest in solving the POGO problem. This motivation was helped when the Titan II engineers came up with some very simple fixes that they believed would solve the problem once and for all, and which would not add to the cost of the Titan II vehicle. Finally, a visit to the second stage contractor Aerojet by both NASA and the Air Force in the early summer of 1963 revealed that the likely cause of the second stage issues stemmed from poor design, manufacturing, and build processes at the contractor. Now, this wasn't good, but those were deficiencies that could be and were corrected. So by the fall of 1963, the Air Force had both the motivation and the means to build a booster that would meet not only their needs, but NASA's needs as well. So when Titan Missile N-25 launched in October of 1963, it featured all of the POGO reduction measures and a newly engineered second stage. And the launch was a complete success and featured a pogo effect of just barely more than 0.1 g, well within NASA's limit. And the second stage performed flawlessly as well. Just like that, Gemini had a booster that they thought they could rely on. And none too soon, uh, because as you'll remember from last episode, by the time of this N25 launch, October of 1963, the first test of the booster in its Gemini configuration was less than five months away, and in fact, the booster itself was already at Cape Canaveral, awaiting final test and assembly. Now, thankfully, all of the POGO reduction measures were things that could be added to the booster after it had been assembled, and they were those modifications were duly made. But, uh, as often happens, once a problem was solved, it stayed solved. And although the Gemini program would use one of its flights as an unmanned mission that was intended just to ensure that the changes to Titan II would work in its Gemini configuration, the booster would never again be a major issue for the program. So, by the fall of 1963, the means of getting Gemini to orbit finally seemed like it was sorted out. And, but what about Gemini, the spacecraft itself? Well, once again, here, a series of technical challenges combined with program management issues, had been bedeviling the project almost from the beginning. In the case of the capsule, the program management issues didn't stem from the nature of the contract, as they did with the Air Force, but rather they arose from the fact that the capsule needed some new systems that had not been part of the Mercury capsule design, 
and those new systems required advanced engineering that the prime contractor, McDonnell Aircraft, simply wasn't capable of doing, and so they had to be subcontracted to companies with more expertise. Now, there were four main subsystems in this category. Um, the first was effectively another rocket engine, or series of rocket engines, the so-called Orbital Attitude Maneuvering System, which was subcontracted to Rocketdyne, a division of North American Aerospace. Um, the second and third of these were essential safety systems, the recovery system, um, the paraglider, that we've already talked about at length, uh, whose subcontractor was North American Aerospace, um, and it handled getting crew home safely from orbit, but it actually never did successfully uh, get used on the program. The other safety system was the brand was brand new to Gemini, and it was the system that would ensure the crew's safety uh, in case of a mishap on the way to orbit. And this, of course, was the injection seat system contracted to Rocket Power Incorporated. And the final system, which was brand new to Gemini, was the power generation system to be used on orbit. See, the Mercury capsule had used single-use batteries to supply all of the electrical power for what was needed for its entire flight. But the Mercury capsule had only been designed for three orbits, or less than five hours, on orbit. Extending the duration of the Mercury flights uh, required more and more batteries, and they were heavy and bulky. And although Mercury finally managed a flight of over 34 hours, it was clear that the battery solution was not really going to work for flights of a week or even two weeks, as were planned for Gemini and Apollo. So the Gemini spacecraft was designed to use fuel cells, um, which combine hydrogen and oxygen, to generate an electrical current and water. These fuel cells were designed and provided by General Electric. Now, each one of these new systems had its very own unique challenges, and each one of them, at one time or another, probably topped the list of the most significant threats to the program after the booster. But each of them also took much longer to resolve than the booster problem did, uh, because none of them actually had to be solved for the first Gemini flight, uh, which, as we discussed last time, was an unmanned flight of a dummy capsule that didn't have most of the flight systems installed. But let's look at them quickly in turn before turning our attention to the first flight. First, the Orbiter Attitude uh, Maneuvering System, which hereafter we'll just call the thrusters because, well, it was just a series of thrusters. Uh, the system was a series of small rocket engines called thrusters that were arranged around the spacecraft. There were some small thrusters, uh, 16 of them, delivering 25 pounds of thrust, or 111 newtons. I'm going to keep using the imperial units because they're the ones that are the round numbers. Anyway, the 16 small thrusters were designed to allow the crew to control the attitude of the spacecraft, that is, to be able to point it in any direction they chose. A smaller number of eight larger thrusters, 100 pounds, or 444 newtons, were placed to allow the spacecraft to move in any direction. So this gave the astronauts the ability, in flight dynamic speak, to maneuver in all six degrees of freedom, meaning yaw, pitch, and roll, as well as X, Y, and Z. Now, while I may be making it sound complicated, it wasn't really. And the theory of how to make it work relied on nothing more than the basic principles of physics that many of us learned in high school. You aim a rocket engine in a certain direction, um, whatever it's attached to moves in the other direction. Similarly, the rocket motors themselves were extremely simple machines. They basically consisted of a small combustion chamber, which had propellant, uh, propellant injectors at one end, and a throat and a nozzle at the other end. 
Now, fuel and oxidizer were sprayed by the nozzles into the chamber, where they spontaneously ignited, and the resulting gases were sprayed out the nozzle. Now, there were almost no moving parts, except maybe in the injectors themselves. Now, to be sure, the fuel, hydrazine, and oxidizer, nitrogen tetroxide, um, were extremely noxious, noxious substances, and still are, and they require very careful handling. But even that didn't cause a whole lot of difficulty. The difficulty instead, instead came from the need to keep the little rockets from um, literally consuming themselves. In effect, whenever the propellants mixed in the engine, uh, they result in a violent, albeit small, explosion. This, is, uh, this property is known as being hypergolic. Uh, the explosion generated a lot of gas, but also a lot of heat. And because the thrusters were so simple, there was no mechanism for providing any active means of cooling to remove the heat. Uh, further, because the thrusters were going to have to work in a vacuum, none of the heat could be carried away by the movement of air over the hot surface. And frankly, whether you realize it or not, uh, this so-called convective cooling is actually the predominant way that heat gets redistributed in the world in which we normally live. I mean, every time you sweat, you're cooling yourself convectively by air moving over your damp skin. And every time you cover yourself with a blanket, this allows you to trap air next to your body, which your body then heats and, and warms you up by convection. So we really don't appreciate uh, just how being in a vacuum limits the options for moving heat from one place to another. Uh, especially if it has to be done in a hurry. In response to this, the engineers at Rocketdyne uh, resorted to the same mechanism that was used to keep the capsule cool in the extreme heat of re-entry. They used ablation. Essentially, uh, they would let the lining of the combustion chamber and the nozzle burn away over time. As the material was consumed, it would use up heat and thus keep the engine from melting entirely. And this did work, um, just not well enough. Uh, the issue was that in order to perform the rendezvous and docking maneuvers required of the Gemini spacecraft, uh, the crew was going to have to use the thrusters extensively, uh, much more extensively than the similar system on the Mercury spacecraft. Uh, initially, NASA told Rocketdyne that the motors would have to survive for up to five minutes of use. And while Rocketdyne quickly converged on a design that was the right size, weight, and thrust, even after almost a year of testing, they still had not managed to find a motor design that could survive the amount of firing that was required. And then, in the fall of 1963, NASA made the problem much, much worse when it released results of testing uh, which had simulated the on-orbit rendezvous scenarios. And in these tests, it was discovered that the astronauts are more likely to use almost double the amount of fuel, and therefore thruster time, that had originally been expected, so the burn time requirements were raised accordingly. All of which meant that the Gemini program arrived at the end of 1963 without a working solution for the on-orbit maneuvering system. Thankfully, though, the first flight of Gemini wouldn't require it. And also thankfully, a solution was around the corner, but it wouldn't appear until actually after the first Gemini flight. Now, similarly, the escape system was not going to be ready for the first flight, and again, since the first mission was unmanned, this was okay, because an escape system obviously wasn't required. Now, the reason for delays in the escape system were really quite different than the issues with the thrusters or the booster. The issues were really much more like those encountered in the paraglider program. 
And that was, um, as a safety system, the design just had to be tested. Tested extensively, tested rigorously, and that, that just took time. Now, unlike Paraglider, whose various testing campaigns were truly a series of un- or barely mitigated disasters, the escape system uh, testing seems to have been quite um, professionally handled. It's just that, in response to testing, the system needed to be consistently and constantly tweaked, and then it had to be retested, or sometimes the test rig had to be updated, and then the tests had to be reperformed. The fundamental problem, as with a lot of issues on Gemini, was that the escape system for Gemini, built around two crew ejection seats, needed to do things that no previous uh, system of its kind had ever been asked to do. First of all, in the case of a failure on the pad, it needed to be able to propel the astronauts in their seats far enough away from the booster to prevent them from being caught in the explosion. It also needed to launch them high enough to allow their parachutes to open and land them softly on the ground. Now, this implied that the seat would have to eject from the capsule with a force and at a velocity not previously attained up until that point. The problem was that it had to do this while not only protecting the astronaut, but also accounting for the fact that the astronaut was a living and moving entity and not a simple stable mass attached rigidly to the seat. And this, as anyone who knows any mechanical engineering or aeronautical engineering, is actually no mean feat. And solving it consumed more than a year of engineering test time. But by the fall of 1963, the so-called simulated off-pad ejection, or SOAP, testing had been successfully completed. But that was not the limit of the engineering problems the ejection seats needed to address. In addition to being able to safely extract an astronaut from a stationary capsule on the ground, the ejection seat also had to be able to pull astronauts to safety from a capsule moving at high, very high, speed and at high altitude during ascent. So, as you can imagine, simulating these conditions was also no mean feat of engineering, and definitely a case where more time and resources were spent on the test rigs themselves than on the testing. But by the end of 1963, after a lot of very careful engineering, uh, it seemed clear that the ejection seat system was on its way to being certified, uh, although there were still some high-altitude tests that needed to be performed. So we'll briefly revisit the ejection seat in a future episode as well. Now, the last problem was the fuel cells, and thankfully they weren't needed for the first Gemini flight either. In fact, they wouldn't be needed in the end until much later in the flight sequence because it had already been decided uh, by January 1963, or sorry, January 1964, that the first few Gemini flights uh, were short enough to use batteries, just as the Mercury flights had. So, given that, and given how long this episode has already become, I think maybe I'm going to leave the story of the fuel cells to another day. Um, because, as I promised uh, today, we really do need to get Gemini off the ground. And so, we shall. Uh, you will recall that in the last episode, we had actually managed to get a Gemini Titan booster to the pad and made it to a Gemini spacecraft. Now, granted, the spacecraft for this mission was not a fully functional Gemini spacecraft, but just kind of a, a dummy spacecraft with limited telemetry capabilities. But it did have the same physical characteristics as a functional Gemini spacecraft in terms of its, its weight and moments of inertia and that sort of thing. 
So the launch of the Gemini Titan 1 would be a true test of the booster's ability to put a Gemini spacecraft into orbit. And it should be noted that in early 1964, this was not actually an achievement to be taken lightly. Gemini spacecraft would actually be one of the largest objects ever placed in orbit, uh, and certainly the largest that had ever been launched from the United States. It was also, as we discussed in the lap last episode, the end of over a year of careful planning, testing, assembly, and verification. So, when the clock started at T-300 minutes at 6 a.m. on the 8th of April, uh, the launch team was confident, but, you know, cautious as well. But, in the end, all of the time and attention to detail spent in the assembly, verification test, and launch preparation was justified. The countdown proceeded with no delays, and at 11 a.m. and 1 second, the Titan II booster left the launch pad on its way to deliver the first Gemini capsule to orbit. Two and a half minutes and about 120 tons of propellant later, the first stage cut off and the pyrotechnic bolts fired, and then the second stage ignited and accelerated away with the capsule. After another three minutes, the second stage stopped, and the Gemini Spacecraft 1 had reached orbit. It was an almost flawless launch. Uh, the final orbital velocity was over 7,000 meters per second, and it only exceeded the target velocity by just 7 meters per second. For three orbits, NASA monitored the telemetry from the spacecraft, and at the conclusion of the third orbit, a bit less than five hours into the flight, it declared the formal end to the Gemini 1 mission. Uh, the spacecraft would actually stay in orbit for another four days as its orbit slowly decayed, eventually burning up in the Earth's atmosphere on the 12th of April. But with that, Gemini was on the board. True, uh, there was still a lot of work to do to get the next American astronaut into space, but most of the biggest question had been answered, and the NASA engineers turned away from their console screens and turned their attention to getting back to the business of getting humans off the planet. And that's where we're going to pick up the story next time on Terranauts, because that's all the time we have for this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.